0: the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is the world-famous, one of the greatest chefs ever, Rene Redzepi of Restaurant Noma in Copenhagen. He was with us in New York probably a couple months ago on his New York leg of the Noma book for fermentation that's out right now. Highly encourage you guys, if you are a professional cook, you should definitely think about purchasing it. If you're a home cook, it gives you insight into the intense organization and uh, rigor to do a state-of-the-art, world-class fermentation program because they're like an open-source book in terms of the information at NOMA. We go into detail a little bit about how... They got to this point and a little bit at the end about what it's like to operate Noma some 15 plus years later. There's a lot of backstory. I think we mentioned Marc Verrat and Michel Bra and Faron Adria. And in some ways, I believe that what Noma is doing is sort of the legacy of of those guys. They're still highly influential chefs, Marc Verrat and Michel Bra from France. Adria, arguably, these are three of them biggest, most famous chefs in the world. And while Rene didn't work for Michel Bra or Mark Vera, these chefs, he did work for Adria, He did work for Thomas Keller. And the best way I could describe some of the food that's happening at Noma right now is when I eat it, it seems to me a distillation of all of these things, right? So you have different schools of thought that are being represented in the sort of the triptych menu that Noma is now making. And it's uh Game, vegetables, and seafood. And currently it's seafood season again. And when I eat the food, it is to me sort of the philosophy of the naturalism that you get from Bra and Verat. Very significant chefs in the sort of the natural food movement in terms of how you cook, how you farm, how you forage for food, and most importantly, how you plate it. There is a direct link to nature. And Faran. Ironically, the food of Michel Bras was significant in El and if you don't know what El is, look it up. There's a ton of information. There's a documentary that ZPZ and Bourdain did on Ferran and the legacy. You have a lot of top chefs in the world that have come from El probably one of the most significant restaurants in the history of the world, and the legacy they have is is massive. And what they did was it's very hard to describe. So the best way I can describe it is look it up. There's a ton of information online and it was something that the world had never seen, quite frankly. And we owe a great debt of gratitude and respect to the whole team of LBE, which is now closed, has been closed for about a decade now. And it was in um, Rosa, Spain. So about two hours outside of Barcelona, and they did food in a way that made it easier for everyone to cook and to understand. And probably the great legacy of LBE is the fact that they made people question how to make food better, to understand your ingredients. And one of the biggest misconceptions about quote-unquote molecular gastronomy, that's a horrible phrase for what is basically just modern cooking, is that all of these great chefs started to ask the question, how do we make something better? Why do certain foods cook the way they do and why do they taste the way they do. It was the first time in a long time people started to ask the question of why and was there a better way to do it. So culinary history is so important to me, to know what came before you so you can do something different moving forward, to pay respect, to honor the things that came before you. And what I love most about the Nomen menu right now is that it's a total love letter to me about all the great chefs that came before them. And it's at one step one foot in the past and one foot moving forward. And that's a very hard act to do. Some of the notes that I took as I listened to this was we dropped the name Madrid Fusion. Identity, I can never pronounce it as I could not in the pod. There's a series, and they, while they're still going on, from I'd say like 2000 or 1999 till most recently, there were a series of food conferences. Most famous one was in Madrid. You had Gastronomica in San Sebastian, but Spain was sort of the leading proponent. Some of them took place in uh, France. You had Omnivores Conference, and uh, there was a bunch of stuff, and they still happened in Europe, but I wouldn't say the significance is less, but there was a period of time where something that had never happened in the food world was happening. You had all of these chefs congregating, and you were so proud to go on stage in front of a couple thousand people at times. and demo your latest latest greatest technique or a philosophy of what you were trying to do and it eventually became a little bit formulaic because you had to have a video that was highly edited with this cool soundtrack and you had to show some cool technique but when it first happened it was groundbreaking and and probably the first American chef that took part in all of this was Wiley Dufresne, who really, again, opened the door for me and many others today. But these these food conferences were important because it became a place where you could exchange ideas. And that had really never happened before, as far as I know, in terms of geeking out over food and sharing insights as to how to make food better. And it almost was also like what I would imagine a fashion show to be because it was peacocking a little bit as to what was cool about your restaurant and what other people couldn't do. And it was a great way to exchange ideas, but also to get your restaurant noticed on a global fashion. Ultimately, all these conferences led to sort of the top 50 malaise nonsense that we have now. And Renee sort of helped create the different thing. There's now different food conferences that you have. You have the Welcome Conference by the 11 Madison Park team. You have MAD, hosted by Renee in Copenhagen. There are things that are sort of the opposite of the, these very technical food conferences. The other thing that we talked a lot about is umami. If you don't know what umami is, that is sort of the fifth taste that was recently accepted by sort of modern science I dropped the name Dr. Aikida. Essentially, he discovered what umami is, and that, when artificially produced, is called MSG, monosodium glutamate. I won't go too deep into umami. You should look it up. There's a ton of information. We talked a lot about it in Ugly Delicious. Recently, Kenji Alt-Lopez wrote a great article about umami in Serious Eats. I highly recommend you check it out. And from a cultural perspective, if you want to know more about umami— you should check out Ian Mosby. He is a sort of, I will not say food historian. He's like a anthropologist uh, of culture and things. And he happened to write probably one of the best papers I've ever read on the cultural significance of MSG stereotypes. And, uh, you know, I think there's an important debate that we have not fleshed out enough, especially from my end, about sensitivity versus allergy. But hopefully this awareness will become more prominent. We also dropped you know, a lot of microbiology and terroir, the concept that if we made sauerkraut in America and sauerkraut in Germany, they're going to taste different. It's the same principle in microbiology that is what makes wine taste different. Everyone grows the same shit all over the world, but it tastes different. And that's because of microbes. I am not an expert in any of this stuff. I had to learn a lot of this from scratch and it's endlessly fascinating. And had I learned about food and microbiology, maybe I would have uh, done better in school, but I had to learn some working knowledge of microbiology to better understand how to make food better. And this ultimately ties into the podcast with Renee and fermentation. I could go on and on, but overall, there's a lot of knowledge that Renee dropped and a lot of references that we dropped. And if you have any questions, email us at askdave at majordomomedia.com. Happy to explain but, you know, we have the internet and you can look up Mark Verrat. You can look up Michelle Brahe, You can look up Fran Adria. You can go, I'm sure, on YouTube and look at all the past Madrid Fusion conferences and, and all the wonderful talks they had, which leads me into, finally, the meat of the podcast, which is for the conversation with Rene Redzepi. He's talking about his book that they released a couple months ago, the Noma book on fermentation with David Zilber, their head of their fermentation lab. A Really, world class, best in class book. Not that fermentation is new; it is the reason why food is delicious for the most part, or why we we even have a food culture before refrigeration. But it's something that is the most in vogue food technique, I think, that has spread around the world over the past decade. And it is unequivocally the sort of be all end all for books. So uh, if you're interested in it at all, or if you want to get a better insight into how one of the greatest chefs in the world thinks and their philosophy at Noma, there are plenty of books about them that they've published, but this is the most recent one because they've really incorporated in a way that is very different than a lot of restaurants. And their food has changed a lot because of it and something we get into. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Renee Vazepi and fermentation and a few other topics we talk about. Enjoy. We are recording at Momofuku Co. I am with my good friend, Rene Redzepi of Noma. He is on this North American tour. We're getting at the, like, the last leg of what is really a brutal thing to go on a book tour mm-hmm. with David Zilber because you guys have just done this magnum opus towards to fermentation, right? Yeah. The Noma guy to fermentation.
1: Yep. 10 cities, 11 days.
0: So what is a book tour? Like what do you do cuz most people probably just attend it but from a perspective of the author that has to go on it what does it entail
1: so you wake up in the morning way too early between 6 and 7 sometimes even earlier and you rush downstairs and then you there's a car to pick you up and you go to the airport and you fly somewhere and then you land and then you go straight to a venue you you put on your things and then you do the event Meanwhile, you eat something at the space, like, I don't know, something takeout, and then you finish around 9, 9.30, and then you go back to the hotel, and you sleep, and you do the same thing next day in a new town. That's honestly how it is.
0: <laughs> it's almost like being a um, comedian or in a band, right? Yeah. Night after night.
1: Night after night, you're just somewhere. And um, Dave Zilber, it's his first time to try this, basically. And I told him, remember everything. Like, have a structure because you're going to forget everything. And lo and behold, on the last three uh, trips, he started to forget everything. And the last one, last thing he forgot was his passport. So they're shipping it now to New York. (laughs) (laughs) Because he forgot his passport. He didn't even know where it was. It was somewhere in the room. He couldn't remember where he left it.
0: That's important travel advice when you're on like a 10, 20-day city tour. Mm -hmm. uh, Just double check. I carry two phones. I have two passports because… I still just leave stuff everywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I mean, most of the time we we're sort of in the safe place of a kitchen. We don't really try to travel like this. So even just doing it, I mean, it's crazy meeting all these people, saying hello to everyone, and, and you have
0: to be you, you want to be nice, but it's also like you're out of your comfort zone.
1: Well, there was this one experience where we took. I mean, it was a it was wild because I tried to also to explain David this. Uh, David Zilber, that when you, when you meet five, six, 700 people and you spend three, four, five hours with them and taking pictures and signing books, I mean, at the end of this, you're like, I want to go. <laughs> and, it's so uh, hard, right? Yeah. And he it's... was like, ah, I think I'll be fine. <laughs> and then After the first event, he's like, oh shit, I think we, we got to work this out. We got to figure out how we're going to do this so it's smooth.
0: But on the other hand, it's
1: also amazing, you know? I mean, the worst thing that can happen is when they're not there.
0: Right. And you have to be thankful. They're here to listen to you guys, chat about the book. And the worst thing in the world is to not be enthused when someone that's waited like a couple hours gets to Mm -hmm. finally meet you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's a dual thing. One is you're tired, but two is like, man, I am so lucky to be in this position. Mm -hmm. And it's a very strange place to be.
1: Yeah, and like I said, the worst thing is when, when they're not there waiting, when, when nobody wants to buy your book, nobody wants to come to your restaurant, and they're not actually interested in understanding what's going on.
0: On the first Momofuku cookbook, I went to Atlanta, and I had to go to a supermarket there mm-hmm. and literally sit at a table next mm-hmm. to a pile of watermelons. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Not one, one person came up. <laughs> oh, David <laughs> Oh, for,
0: for me. Well, I mean, the world has changed. The world you. has changed, but still, it, it, I'm always remembering that, is that as, as hard as it is, it's really not that hard, and it's a really amazing position to be in, specifically for a book like this, right? I think I'm trying not to get too technical on, on this book itself, because this is why you're here. We could talk about a variety of things, um, mm-hmm. and um, and we do talk about a variety of things, but for this podcast, the fact that people are lining up to learn about fermentation
1: mm-hmm.
0: is a very strange. There have been books about fermentation before.
1: Oh yeah, many. I mean, you can go online, right? But no. here's here's the thing. <laughs> I thought about writing a
0: book of fermentation, but like you are way more generous with information.
1: <laughs> we gave away everything. Yeah, I, I, I,
0: I, I, we just decided to like hold on to it. Yeah, and you gave everything away. Everything.
1: That's a, that's a very different point of view. It's like uh, what we've been working on the past ten years. And funny enough, every single place we've been to, there's been a a couple of people in the crowd saying, hey, where can we buy this? Can we get it at the store? And we're like, no, but you have the book now, so you can make it and sell it at the store if you want, because the recipes are in in the book.
0: Can you talk about how fermentation's changed? I think I've been one of the probably few people that have visited Noma since the beginning. I, mm-hmm. I didn't go for the first year or two years, but I went in 2006, mm-hmm. and I've been visiting your restaurant pretty regularly ever since. Yeah, and the food from 2006 to say like 2012, 13
1: mm-hmm.
0: was amazing. I mean, honestly, it's still like in it, for my nostalgia banks one of my most favorite periods ever because mm-hmm. you could see this this thing rising, mm-hmm. right. And then you get to the top and you're like, wait, we can't do what we did in the past. Mm -hmm. And then it started to change, change, change. And I didn't get to go to Japan, but I could see like flavors start to develop. And you started to, you didn't really incorporate a lot of these techniques till you were like mastered Mm
1: them. I feel. Oh yeah. So the trajectory of NOMA is, you know, we're 15 years old and we started out simple little restaurant. We're like seven people in the entire team in November 23rd, and it was a cold year. We were struggling to find ingredients, obviously. And um, the first thing we did when spring came was that we went to uh, nature and we started foraging and we became known as this foraging restaurant. And we were known for that for quite a while, but at some point we started investigating what we could do to bring these ingredients into the next season. And at one point we stumbled upon fermentation, but we only stumble upon it because we were kind of pickling, you know, we we're making like dill pickles and pickles of roots and so on. And, and, and so we stumble upon fermentation and we make this sauerkraut. And then we understood that it was a lactic acid fermentation that was occurring when you did that. You could do it with other ingredients.
0: But could you back up? Like, cause you were fermenting a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. so much of Noma during the spring and summer months mm-hmm. was literally preparing for the long winter. Yeah. And I would go upstairs to the prep kitchen, and it was just madness to Mm -hmm. clean, store, and preserve vegetables. And more often than not, I feel like almost every kitchen around the world has figured out, oh, if I put this vegetable, salt it, and then put it in some vinegar, it's going to stay a long time. It's going to last, yeah. And you guys had so many different kinds of like
1: Mm -hmm. pickled vinegars. What's the berry that tastes like an onion? That's our version of a ramp. Yeah, so good. And it's the, when they deflower, there's a little seed and that seed is completely amazing. It's so good. It's so good. And if you pickle that or if you salt it and, and ha- have it go through lactic acid fermentation, like you make a sauerkraut of it, basically. Yeah. And that was a discovery moment for us where we realized, okay, there's a difference between jarring and say fermenting. You know, there's two different things. And so once we dove into that, we discovered this new incredible world. And we really, really, really started investigating into it, but only when when we decided to build our own fermentation bunker. That Which it really was. It was a bunker. It was three containers, and we bought the second cheapest kitchen in Ikea. We built it ourselves. Well, I mean, I have photos of that. And the day
0: I got picked up from the airport, and he literally was telling me, I think over text, like, dude, we built a bunker. And I'm like, whatever, a bunker. <laughs> and if you walk in the old Noma in the back, there was literally piles of shipping containers, and... It was literally like an apocalyptic bunker dedicated to fermentation. I was blown away.
1: And you know, it was because it was the cheapest way to do it. And uh, it worked out. And you know, the team at the time, they built it. It was uh, Ariel Johnson and Lars. They kind of built it themselves with their bare hands with a cheap IKEA kitchen. And from that moment on, it was also the first moment when, when we really totally dedicated a team from the kitchen And basically took them out of the mise en place and the daily chores and said, you're just fermenting. And they went wild.
0: But something changed, right? And part of this is like, we could talk and I want to make sure that the audience can fill in some of the history gaps. Mm -hmm. Is that I think you get mislabeled as sort of this Marc Vera, Michel Bra type of person. But if I have to think about where Noma is, it has a stronger lineage, I think, towards Farhan and what LBE did. Mm -hmm. And you were one of the first people to be like, wait, even though I don't even know if we can afford it, we have to dedicate R&D. We have to figure out what to do. And you had a Nordic lab on the boat right outside. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, wait a second, like they're trying to like figure out how to do new things with new ingredients, not new ingredients, but done in a new way. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an interesting arc, right? Because all of a sudden you're like, wait, This isn't about creating new techniques with old ingredients. This is old techniques with old ingredients. Mm -hmm. And we gotta find ways to introduce it to a new audience. Mm -hmm. And what was that change? Like, besides, like, oh wait, we didn't know what lactobacillic fermentation was, because there was like, I I feel like a real genuine moment, like, oh shit, (laughs) there's so much flavor here, we just Mm -hmm. don't even know. Because when people go to NOMA, what in terms of your culinary philosophy, I don't think people quite understand. Like, why were you so it wasn't a struggle, but you put a limit on what you were able to work with. So you had to ma- learn to maximize ingredients and flavors, right? Mm-hmm. That's something that I think a lot of people may not understand is why did you impose such a restriction on yourself?
1: Well, it was the early days of Noma. And um, I mean, we kind of knew that if we didn't, it'd be so much easier in the, in the depth of winter to just pick up the phone and order something from, from the South. I mean, it, we wouldn't allow ourselves to really dive in deep into our space into our landscape. And that was the reason why we did it. And of course, it made us who we are today. Today we've expanded on that. I mean
0: but the beginning though was like stark contrast. You literally were cooking black and white. That's what I always yeah. look at it
1: as. Like but it was and then, you know at first it would be it would be very very hard at first because we didn't really know today if we were to do it today we could actually do it much better now. <laughs> why why is that? Because we know how to work with things and we have a pantry and we understand things and We have cooked 100 beet dishes. When you start out, I was 25 years old when Noma opened. It's winter, end of November, and you're standing with all these ingredients, and it's like codfish, salted and fresh, and some beets and some onions and some cabbages, basically. And and go ahead, make me a a nine-course menu. And it was really, really, really hard. I mean, we were struggling big time. And so, of course, in this search for flavors, you looked and you studied the world. What do other people do? What do they do in Korea? What do they do in Japan? To places that are cold climate regions too, where they historically had to preserve in order to survive the cold winters that they can have. And uh, slowly but surely, you know, I, I to- went on a trip to Japan. I went to Kyoto. We went to this Umami Information Center. Oh, this is the Murata <laughs> trip, right? Yeah. And I spent a week in a, in a kitchen at this, you know, he's like the Paul Bocuse of, of Japan, uh, Murata from restaurant Kikunoi. And that was like a, a big moment when things started falling into place. And we understood, okay, we can make this back home. And I took home the mold, the Aspergillus orse, which is sort of the mother mold of most things that are delicious. <laughs> you know, miso, soy, mirin, sake. And we brought it home and we we're like, okay, can we do this here? And so the first test we did was that we don't have soybeans, it can't grow Well, it can grow, but it's not strong enough to really produce uh, misos and so on. And so we did it with uh, yellow split peas. And it didn't taste like miso. It didn't taste like anything I'd tasted before. It tastes like yellow split peas.
0: I remember that day too, because I remember being like, It's sort of like – I remember reading in the – I can't remember what class I took way back when, but someone said, like, if Einstein didn't figure out how to do the theory of relativity like someone else did, I think he shared it with some guy from Japan. And we were doing a lot of cooking together at that time, and I brought all of these fermented stuff. And literally, the team brings out the yellow split pea, and I'm like, what the fuck is that? Mm -hmm. And then I bring out this pistachio and this Mm -hmm. chickpea stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a moment like, wait, you're doing what we're – it was like – And then we found there were other people around the world that were like discovering like, wait, you don't have to make this stuff with soybean. Mm -hmm. And that was like a big Eureka moment. I think weirdly everyone figured it out around the same goddamn time. It was a very strange
1: thing. It was. And I remember that period too. I thought it was amazing actually.
0: We were putting it in everything. Yeah. So like uh, just around that period, everything still seemed new. And I think what was different with our friendship and other chefs around that time is – Things were, I think, collegial in previous generations of chefs, but there was way more information sharing than I think previous generations. And around the early part of this decade, whether it was from conferences like Madrid Fusion or Gastronomica or wherever, ident- what's the one in Italy? Identità Colosa. Yeah. <laughs> I can never <laughs> pronounce it. So the, 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 it sort of set this forum of how to exchange information. And I'm still guilty of holding on to ideas and recipes. And one thing that the Noma team and, and Renee's been way more generous is, is sharing those ideas. But I was still, I'll never forget that moment where it was either Magnus and I think Patter- There was just so many chefs that were figuring out, wait, like, we don't have to do what anyone else is doing. We can figure out our own thing. Mm-hmm. And then you guys took it and it really took this Nordic bent. Mm-hmm. And I think it all sort of, changed when you started doing the pop-ups too Mm -hmm. like what did that do with how you figured out wait i don't have to make just nordic food nordic anymore because essentially you created the template for the modern day like nordic food thing right Mm -hmm. and i think it's important to know that you started out with like nothing with a color palette that was black and white Mm -hmm. really struggled to learn out of that and appreciate what you had and then oh wait we're gonna cook with color now Mm -hmm and when you went abroad mm-hmm. first to first pop up was where japan, japan. what happened because were you well, making food japanese food or are you making danish food
1: that's a good question i mean if you ask japanese let's say this is not japanese the ingredients are japanese but we don't know these flavors the way they're put together but all the all my friends who came from europe they're like wow you're making japanese food you know because we're cooking tofus and... Can
0: you explain that so to people? Like that's, it I mean, seems relatively simple, but it's
1: incredibly complex. Yes, it's very complex. I mean, first of all, we spent four months traveling around Japan. I went any, everywhere from north to southeast to west. And we really wanted to have some sort of understanding. And we read all the books and all the papers on Japanese food. And we you know, visited temples and uh, met master chefs and everything. So to have some sort of understanding of what, what's it about. And of course, we can never be a local, right? We can only learn as a layman from the outside. And then when we came there, we have a different approach to things. You know, it's our approach. We're born in a different place. So we use the ingredients, but we put it together in a way that comes from a different place. And to the Japanese, it was very, very different. But then to foreigners, when they came, it was also very different. You know, they thought, oh, this is not Noma. I can see the Noma... Uh, sort of a way of, uh, say, dressing the plate or something. But the flavors, they're completely different. So what did we end up being <laughs> in that place? I don't know. And that's what was so exciting. Like, And it was exciting. You were making flavors that were
0: familiar to you with entirely Japanese ingredients. Mm-hmm. And a lot of fermentation methods that you were developing mm-hmm. that were originally based in Japan, but with Nordic ingredients. So it's like, it was this weird dream-like state I'm bummed that I never got to eat there, but I think there was an important thing that happened and I think it was a, a sign of the times. The day you would open up first service, I feel like everybody that followed food was following it live,
1: you know? <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was wild. Uh, Ivan Orkin. He was the first guest for lunch. I'll never forget it. The first guest who came in, Ivan, who has a ramen shop, and he live-tweeted the entire meal. <laughs> that was also the moment where I was like, okay, the world is changing, Yeah, you know? This is the first guest for lunch and the meal is already out there.
0: And everyone broadcast their meals. Mm-hmm. And I was super excited to see my friend and basically like my Nordic cousins figure out how to make food in a way that had not been done before. That is a very monumental moment, I think, in gastronomy to do something on a public stage like that in a way that's never been done before. That's such a hard thing to do, mm-hmm. right? When everything's been done in food, mm-hmm. and again, fermentation was a massive role in that. Absolutely. You do the sort of same thing. I, I, I had the Sydney menu, mm-hmm. and that was that was mind blowing as well because mm-hmm. all indigenous ingredients, mm-hmm. and then very different, very different, and then Mexico, very different, and then mm-hmm. these three new. I mean, the new Noma. I went to the seafood and I've been to the vegetarian menu and I haven't been to the, the, what is it? The game. The game menu yet. But the seafood menu to me, I was like, this is a Japanese menu.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? I was like, yeah. this is the most umami you could possibly have without being too much yeah. in a menu. And it made it so savory and had all the elements that I never could imagine Noma making. Mm-hmm. And it didn't look Japanese. Mm-hmm. It was all with Nordic ingredients, mm-hmm. but to me, it was a Japanese, yeah. <laughs>
1: Japanese menu. Yeah. I think you have a, a very big understanding of food and flavors, and you can detect these things. But yeah, I mean, we, we have become uh, today masters of umami. I mean, our team is more dedicated than ever. The lab is better than ever. The team is bigger as well. And we have approximately 200 different ingredients, They're ranging from a paste to a liquid. And they're all different. You know, we talk about them as our Legos, as our grown-up Legos. And it's up to us to learn how to build with them so that you know, you know, when you have this piece of fish, what sort of ferment goes with that? What's the drop you're looking for? And so the pantry keeps expanding. And can you elaborate on umami? Because
0: I would probably say that trip with Marata to Kikunoi was revelation for me as well because you rarely get that access Mm -hmm. and i think i went the year before you and Mm -hmm. and uh, i was so excited to have people that went on it too so we could talk about it and it was still sort of i think a discovery and this is probably 10 years 10 11 years ago where to a professional euro american audience they didn't quite fathom what umami was and i think you can't really understand modern day cooking without understanding umami and you can't understand umami without understanding the basics of fermentation and when you really understand how omnipresent umami is mm-hmm. why we think things are truly delicious mm-hmm. it's everywhere and this is going to be a little bit of not of a rant but part of the whole idea of mo- molecular yeah fuck off <laughs> was was the idea that like you you wanted to understand why foods were a certain way yeah right like why does this taste better than that mm-hmm. so to a aspiring young cook that's listening. And they're like, I just want to make this exactly like Renee's doing and Noma's doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I want to copy this exact flavor. Impossible. Why?
1: Because if you want to build these things and make them yourself, they're going to be made in a different place and they're going to be different. And you're going to have to learn it too. It takes years to actually master these things. What do you things. mean learn it? It's pretty simple, right? No. <laughs> it isn't. I mean, it's uh, it, as an idea, it's very simple. And uh, as a recipe, it's very simple. But it's it's like saying that baking bread is simple. You know, of course it is if you want an okay bread. But if you want that bread that exists uh, five places in America or uh, five places in Europe only, then you got to be a master craftsman. And fermentation is that. It's analog. You're going to have to use your hands and your sensibilities and watch generations of generations of your ferment become better or worse until you understand. So you're saying I have to learn science. You're probably going to have to learn some science. Yeah? Microbiology? That's a part of it too. I'm out. <laughs> well, you, you know what you do then, Dave? You do like what I do because I'm out too. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you basically make sure that you find people that are so much better than you are. That they, studied science, they well, that loved love to study at least.
0: Didn't drop out of school at age fifteen.
1: Well, David Zilber kind of dropped out of school, <laughs> um, I, not at age fifteen like myself, but but you know he just loves this. This is his game to study and and find answers.
0: You but, know, but I think part of the problem, not a problem. If I see one problem of this book, other than you've just opened like a positive Pandora's box, is you're going to see a lot of people want to do it themselves, and they have done it. I feel like. Almost every restaurant that's trying to do something interesting has some kind of ferment. Mm-hmm. But it's all like making sausage in-house.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: People know how to do it, but you shouldn't really do it. Mm-hmm. What is going to prevent people from having an extensive laboratory, extensive part of their restaurant dedicated to fermentation? Because at one thing, this book is encouraging them to do it. But I also don't think they understand all the things that they're going to need to do to be that good at
1: it. Mm, So, I mean, if you're in a restaurant and you want to have the pantry like we do, then that's a different story. I mean, you're going to need a team and a space. But if you uh, want to focus on one or two ferments that you find particularly delicious, if you're a seafood restaurant and you think, okay, the fermentation of berries, which is a simple process and can be done, you know, in your kitchen cabinet, is like doing kimchi the liquids from that and the paste of that is really, really, really delicious with my seafood. And I'll focus on that. That's a very doable thing. If you want a hundred different things, it's a different ball game. If you feel like uh, that you're from the South of America and you have peanuts and you want to do a peanut miso because it's a part of your heritage there, then you can do that. If you focus and figure out, okay, this is close to me and this is what I want to do, then you can actually do it.
0: Before we go on, Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Roman. With two-thirds of guys experiencing noticeable hair loss by age 35, most guys assume losing their hair is inevitable as they age. Some don't care. Some shave their head. Some embrace hats. But what they don't know is that there are FDA-approved medications designed to stop hair loss and even regrow hair. That's why we're excited to partner with our sponsor, Roman. Roman. Roman makes it easy to get safe, FDA-approved hair loss treatment, all from your phone or computer. And when you go to GetRoman.com Chang, your online visit is free. Consult with a U.S.-licensed physician through their secure online platform. No awkward conversations with receptionists or reading bad magazines in the waiting rooms. Once your doctor ensures that treatment will be safe and effective for you, Roman's dedicated pharmacy can ship you medication to you with free two-day shipping and discreet packaging. If you're noticing unwanted hair loss, starting treatment early is key, and Roman can help. And today, Roman is giving The Dave Chang Show listeners a free online visit at GetRoman.com slash Chang. That's GetRoman, one word, slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for a free visit to get started. Go to GetRoman.com slash Chang. Do you think that you can call it miso? This is a conversation we've
1: had. No, I don't think so.
0: I feel like it's a misnomer. Yeah. So we just so. made up a word, right? Yeah. We call it Hozon Banji. I don't even remember why the hell we call it. We that.
1: call ours Piso. <laughs> <laughs> Hozon. <laughs> but, but
0: when you say something like peanut miso, that's the lowest hanging fruit. But I think that actually hinders our ability to understand umami and the history of it. Because now I'm seeing it on menus. Everyone's like... Oh, this is strawberry miso. I'm like, whoa, 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 man. Like, that (laughs) is… What's that? Where where have we seen that. (laughs) We don't talk about it. (laughs) But, like, I know this, right? Like, people are going to try to copy it. And I'm not trying to get people to not copy it, but they need to see how much fucking work you guys put into it. Mm -hmm. And when you have a laboratory, you have a state-of-the-art laboratory dedicated Mm -hmm. towards fermentation. Yeah, It doesn't prevent people, but this has been a almost a decade-year evolution to get Mm -hmm. to this point.
1: Absolutely. And that's the reason why we put it together in a book. (laughs) (laughs) Presented very easily to read, so everybody can get it. No, I mean, definitely, if you want the full, and we talked about this on the tour, a lot of people said, how can I, in my restaurant, go to the next level with fermentation? The first thing I tell people, you got to hire someone full-time for this.
0: I don't even back up. I'd say first and foremost, they need to have the dedicated space. Mm-hmm. too. they probably need to get a HACCP plan. I don't know if you have that in Copenhagen. Oh,
1: yes. It's seven folders thick. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's so important to have accountability on all the ingredients because mm-hmm. you don't want to get anyone sick.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how that is here in America. It, it feels like in America, it's, it's more difficult to do these things. And What a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. And uh, I mean, for us, so you, you know, we, we uh, have accountability for everything. We have all the processes written down. Honestly, we'd be happy to share it, even if people want to have a look at it. Maybe we can put it online or something so people can read it.
0: Well, the HACCP plan is a specific thing for America, right? And I think there are probably some similarities. It's something that NASA created to have that accountability when people are eating in space so they could trace everything. And and this is something that we've done, right? We we have a lab. We make the stuff. And it's something that is a giant resource and and financial cost to Mm -hmm. do. So if someone is, say, a smaller restaurant. Buy a miso. Buy a piso.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Buy a good miso.
0: But what if they want to screw around with it? Like, what is the one thing that they should make that's not sort of like a pickled berries or kimchi. And like, I feel pretty confidently that in the next sort of five to 10 years, if you're not making your own soy version of soy sauce or miso, just like the past 10, 15 years, like if you're not making your own bread anymore and you're not doing this this, and this, it's almost like you're losing street cred. And pretty sure moving forward, if you're not doing some kind of Japanese-based
1: fermentation, Mm -hmm. you're not going to have that street cred. What do you do? To me... One of the big futures lies in, in the idea of garums. So a garum is basically, imagine a Thai fish sauce. A lot of people know what that is. And um, the Roman Empire, they, they did something. Some people argue that they were the ones who did it first with fresh fish. And it's this very, very potent liquid. There's a paste as well you can use, but it's so intense. And so we've done it with meats, with chicken wings. We've done it with beef, Brilliant. with pork. Crickets, uh, which is very good. Uh, I say crickets because I still have a hard time. <laughs> you have a hard time when I say I know that. Um, that is one thing that is going to be so helpful to people. And well, if you can, because it's it's easy to do, right? Mm, kind of easy. <laughs> I mean, not really, really easy. But what comes after the waiting and the uh, what? I
0: just don't get some fish and salt it and leave it to rot.
1: Well, technically, yes, <laughs> if you have the environment for it and you know, the space and you have to watch it and take care and blah, blah, blah. I mean, just by the book, it's all in the book. We write about how, <laughs> how, uh, how you should take care, but, but the garums is going to be a thing. I don't even doubt that. I think that is going to be the next thing in the world where people are really, really going to understand, wow, this is something special.
0: Basically amino acid liquid, salty
1: amino acid liquid. Yeah. I mean, we have one that's made with squid, all the guts from squid when we had squid on the menu. And uh, if you have a drop of that in your ceviche, it's like unbelievable. If you have a drop of that in your seafood soup. What makes it so delicious?
0: Like any of these ferments, right? The, mm-hmm. Especially the distillation of, of it, right? Mm-hmm. Why is it so good?
1: Well, the fermentation, the time, the quality of the ingredient, the mold. The but, du- but when we taste it,
0: why do we like it so much?
1: Because it is uh, basically a homemade MSG. But we're not allowed to cook with MSG. <laughs> we do it all the time. <laughs> it's in every single serving of our menu every single day of the year.
0: And I'm, I'm sure some people that might be listeners be like, they're aghast. But the fact of the matter is, everything that is sort of delicious, mm-hmm. really, that's not a fresh fruit or vegetable, is laden with it. Naturally. Naturally, right? yeah. And what you're doing is naturally producing mm-hmm. glutamic acids. Yeah.
1: The G in MSG.
0: Yes. And… That I feel like is the distinct difference between when I taste food today from Noma and what I used to taste at mm-hmm. the older versions of Noma, which were intensely delicious but very different. Mm-hmm. But they were like, I think natural juxtapositions of ingredients to get that flavor. Mm-hmm. And it's so much more in a weird way, natural, right? Mm-hmm. It's so much more bare what you're doing. You're you're rather just gonna serve a like sliced squid.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I right. mean, we, we've come to that point now where sometimes the food on the plate looks like nothing has happened to it almost. But then there's probably seven or ten drops of uh, different things that took uh, five years to produce. And people eat it, and they're more happy now. Actually, our guests are more happy now.
0: Do you like, think that if the guests understood that they're actually eating glutamic acid?
1: That- I, they, I don't think they would. I mean, if you say, oh, this is, what, this is the glutamic acid that made you feel this was delicious, people would be like, Sorry, (laughs) I mean, I think in Denmark we don't have the big discussion like you guys here with the MSG and you know. I don't even think people know what it is back home.
0: Well, I mean, everything in Scandinavia is cooler.
1: (laughs) They're just way more open. (laughs) We're just a small, tiny little place where you know our problems. Of course, we have problems, but it's in a different scale, different scale. So people they accept it. If if Noma cooks it, I think most people are like, okay, if they cook it, then. That's probably okay. And
0: that's why this book is so important because you have the seal of approval internationally where are like, oh, I can do this. And I do believe this is the, like, the first steps into getting global acceptance of something that has been a much vilified product,
1: right? Yeah. I hear that MSG is some sort of evil uh, demon for food. I don't understand that myself and I don't see it back home either. I've never actually heard of this vilification of it. Only when I'm when you're traveling, you hear people say, "I don't want MSG; it's giving me headache," and so on and so on. I don't get that. I mean, we we have a lab; we breathe it in every day. I mean, we have like three thousand pounds of homemade MSG in storage right now. And that
0: is actually how the artificial MSG was created, because Dr. Akita he sort of boiled down some dashi, and there was just crystals left over. And that was the genesis of modern day Ajinomoto MSG. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, you can find it in every kind of junk food product. Mm-hmm. But if you put it as table salt, people freak out. <laughs> people eat it all the time. Yeah. And it's the artificial version of what is naturally produced in tomatoes, parmesan, so on and so forth, fish sauce, soy sauce, miso, mm-hmm. you say it. You have the advantage of not having that problem. In in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. So like, how do you educate the world? Does this book help educate and demystify?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it tells you everything and it, some of the recipes, they're like, uh, it's not even a recipe. It's like two, in, three ingredients and you just have to mix it and wait, you know, and it's a sort of supernatural process as well. You just wait and let time and temperature and humidity and the quality of the ingredients do their thing. And then together they create a magical, a concussion. Concoction. How do you say that? Concoction. A concoction. That, um, concussion sounded pretty good too. <laughs> that uh, becomes a, an incredible thing to work with so as a cook, it, as a home cook too. And it has
0: allowed you to make your food simpler.
1: Our food is simpler and it's more delicious. Absolutely. And our guests say that too. Do you think that you will ever go back to not using
0: umami? It's impossible. I feel like once you realize it, you're like, shit, I've been e- nah, eating impossible. umami everywhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's completely impossible. I mean, I feel that fermentation is, is going through an understanding right now. And um, the idea of using fermented products, i.e. a homemade MSG in your food, one or two decades from now will be everywhere. I mean, you'll be able to find, like you have an aisle of kombuchas, you'll have an aisle of fermented products to use in your kitchen.
0: One of the things I really want to sell <laughs> is natural MSG. Mm-hmm. And people think that I'm out of my mind. So I was like, fuck it. We'll just sell MSG. But I think we're pretty far away from the acceptance of that.
1: Ah, not in Denmark. You should move to Denmark, man. I know, <laughs> I know. What else is next for Noma? I mean, we've been open 10 months. It's been crazy. This year has been wild. And uh, we're just getting to learn on new space. Getting to understand this new way of working with the seasons. It might sound simple, okay, we open a vegetarian season, but when you never cooked a vegetarian meal, when you've actually never fully understood what is a vegetarian meal in the West, it's actually really hard as you start planning for these things. When you suddenly become a seafood restaurant during the winter months, and you realize that while you have cooked seafood before at the restaurant, you've never really been a specialist at it, actually... What's there? What's not there? When is it the season? When is the right moment for certain fish? And and you know suddenly you actually feel like okay I, this is a little bit of a, a dodgy moment again where you, f- you feel a little bit uncomfortable.
0: So you intentionally put yourself out of your comfort zone.
1: Yeah, and but I didn't expect it to be this much. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to have some years more with how, this. How many people told you what are you doing? Why are you everyone? Doing this? Not me. Yeah. You said, I don't envy you, Renee. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So are you going to back to seafood yeah. for the spring?
1: Yeah, we're going to go So back. it's always going to be seafood, vegetable, game. Yeah, well, maybe not always. Maybe not always. So what's happened over the course of this year is that, I mean, the most exciting bit to cook was vegetarian season. And it also somehow feels more like the future. It's just this gut feeling. So we're toying with the thought, could we somewhere down the line just be that?
0: Mm. One of the first times I ever experienced this feeling in a dining room was sort of in hockey. It's called like Deke where you like fake out the goalie. And one of the earlier menus at Noma, you put like this giant steak knife down. You get all these beautiful, beautiful courses and they're delicious. And you're expecting this savory giant meat course. And I expect this giant cut of meat because I got this thing and it was like a sweetbread. Just that's it. And then one year, it was just like, I can't remember. It was like bone? It was like marrow or something? Bone marrow. Yeah. And it's always frustrated me because you're fucking with me all the time. (laughs) And it's the best possible way when I explain to people about this menu is that it pushes me out of my comfort zone. It forces me to think in ways that I didn't think before. And over the years, the menu's changed. There's definitely senses and feelings that you're trying to go for, like, like a fashion show, for instance. Like you, you're hoping that the audience gets, and you're hoping some people get this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. I've seen some photos of the game menu today, mm-hmm. and I feel like you're intentionally trying to push people, some people, out of the comfort zone. <laughs> Without talking about these dishes, yeah. why do you do that? Shouldn't eating just be so pleasurable?
1: Yeah, I mean… To me, if I can uh, touch the feather of the animal, it is more pleasurable. If I can uh, see what I'm eating, I like that better. I want to be connected to that. I am not afraid of looking, seeing reality as, as it is. I do know that to some people, this is a big shock. I mean, in our part of the world where hunting is a very common thing, it's not so big of a deal to grab the wing of a duck with the feather still on and the meat at the end of it has been cooked so you're sort of eating it it's basically fried duck <laughs> but it's still stuck to the feather and it's a big deal we, we you know for a lot of people because they never, never actually touch the feather and who uh, freaks
0: out the most so far Americans
1: uh, no um, you can give me a wink <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the people who don't freak out at all about anything is always people from Asia they're like oh this is delicious Ah, oh, I love brain <laughs> I love brain. I eat duck brain. Ah, oh, when I was a child, you know, there's always that story. It's always us uh, people in Europe, in America. Also, uh, Latin Americans, like Mexicans, they eat everything. They love everything. They're so into it. What does it tell us about these cultures then? That we should learn from them. Absolutely. That they know what's good still. And uh, our appreciation of, of food and the natural world is very limited. And let's travel and learn. And I mean, we've been doing that.
0: What if a guest is like, I don't want to eat that?
1: That happens very rarely. I mean, today, 15 years in, most people, they know, okay, I'm coming to Noma. But you know, I mean, it still does happen. We had one uh, just before I, um, I went on this book tour. And it's like the game season. There's like meat everywhere. And there was a vegan. <laughs> but they didn't tell us before. What, what do you do on that? Oh, we cook a vegan meal for them. You have no choice. When people are through the doors, people are through the doors. I mean, we've had a few incidents where, where their allergies are so intense, like people can really die of so many different things where we had to say, listen, the restaurant is small. The kitchen is open. We can't take responsibility for your full life when, when it's so severe. But if people show up and, you know, they look down and say, I'm actually a vegetarian, even though I came in meat season. Uh, is that okay? <laughs> we will do something. We're ready for it. I know you got to go. I want to end it on
0: one thing because it's funny. Like I feel like we could have talked about a variety of topics, but I wanted to talk about your book and some of the different viewpoints that you might not have spoken about on tour and all the other interviews you've done. And one of the things I I actually talk quite a bit about with my own cooks and other young cooks that ask me because they know that we're close friends is, hey, you think you can introduce me? You think I can get my feet in the door at NOMA? Mm -hmm. And I tend to ask why.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: first and foremost before I make an introduction so on and so forth I say why Mm -hmm. and almost to every person the unanimous response is it's almost like they want to drink the magic Mm -hmm. they go there and they want to drink the magic (laughs) they want to know how they can bring it home and start to like be like Harry Potter themselves (laughs) my response is and I've always felt that like because you and what Noma has done is literally magic from where it started and how what a force it is, and how you've created a new genre. Really, what gets lost in all of the magic is mm-hmm. the fucking hard work, yeah, and the organization and the discipline. And it's not sexy to talk about, but I always tell these people that ask me, I'm like, before you go there, you want to figure out like how organized and disciplined mm-hmm. you want to be because mm-hmm. that is the magic. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that statement?
1: Absolutely. We work a lot. And the amount of hours I put into this project, I I don't even want to think about. But it's not just me. It's everyone. And we've had people that's been with us since day one. And that's also a part of it.
0: Literally many people from day one.
1: Many people from day one. I mean, of the seven people that we opened Noma, four of them are still there. Only three from the original team have left.
0: I mean, I spoke to, and I never got to work for Fran or Heston. And those are probably like the two restaurants 15 years ago that everyone wanted to work at people still want to work at the fat Duck. It's around you worked at lb mm-hmm. and i would literally find any cook in new york that came back from lb and ask him what was it like and almost every single person came back disappointed
1: mm-hmm. i didn't
0: you didn't why yeah. because they, they all thought they're going to learn how to conjure magic spells like faran yeah but they wound up doing repetition over and over and over again
1: hmm i mean i don't know yeah i don't complete i i saw many people who left at el bully uh, at the time i was there but the reality is you have a restaurant there's like nine people on the line that are truly on the line right and there's like two thousand people waiting (laughs) who's gonna be the next person on the line the one who simply wakes up earliest and just pushes and um that was me so I loved my time there. I mean, I was on all sections. I, when the chef de partie was off, I was running the fish section. It was the time of my life, actually. I thought I was part of something completely magical and special. But if you go in and you have no patience, you think, okay, within two weeks, I'm going to be, you know, online and cooking the fish and serving uh, Ferran, uh, my latest idea, then that's impossible. You know, that's impossible anywhere. So, what's
0: the secret sauce then? Why have you crushed it in all these kitchens? Like, you also worked
1: at French Laundry. Yeah, because I'm, I think I'm, I was always willing to uh, work more. That's it? That's it.
0: It's the one profession where if you work harder than anyone else.
1: Yeah. If you're willing to work and just be an, a decent person and sort of also help the people around you, teach them. I mean, I work with people that never did that. Um, If you do that, then, then you'll get very far.
0: And then do you think that that work ethic and organization and timeliness and all these things that seem cliche are more important than talent? Because there are very talented cooks. And I always say the road to being a great chef is littered with the most talented
1: cooks. Yeah, but I think talent always shows up at one point. Always. You really believe that? Oh, yes. I've seen it all the time. And I've seen people who worked for NOMA for like five, six years, and they're sort of very strong workers. And then suddenly, out of the blue, people start doing this thing where you're like, wow, what's going on? The problem when you see that is, you know, then they're going to leave soon. (laughs) Well,
0: on that note, I encourage if anyone wants to learn the magic, NOMA is still probably at the forefront, at the forefront for sure. And you can work there, see how they do it, and if you can't get there, there's plenty of books that Noma has put out, Renee has put out. And the latest, the Noma Guide to Fermentation, is a perfect window into pretty much a decade of learning how to get this done. Thank you, sir.
1: Thank you so much. All right.
0: That was Rene Redzepi. It's always amazing to me that Noma has just sort of dominated the the global scene and, and its philosophy and its food and all the people that worked there. Because at one point, people called them seal fuckers. And that is a real story. When they first started out and they were trying to discover what kind of food they were going to make as they rediscover and discover what Scandinavian food could be. People in the media joke that they were seal fuckers and they were only serving stuff that no one really wanted and no one could have predicted the success that they had. So when I was speaking to Renee, it should not get lost on anyone, the significance of what they came from, what they've done and truly global significance on food today. Whether you realize it or not, they've changed the whole game and they're at a level now that is Sort of, I would say, unparalleled in terms of what they were willing to risk because they closed down their restaurant of fifteen years and they moved to a new location, and it's tremendous. Um, I am right now in between a lot of different places, uh, as I've spoken before in the pod i I've been on the road quite a bit, and we want to add some new elements and experiment into how the pod's gonna be and where and how it's going to grow into so while we have the majority of this conversation is about Renee, I wanted to share you some tidbits about my recent trip to Tokyo, and there's a lot to unpack and discuss, but one of the things that I think people find more and more serious is my love of Japanese convenience stores. When I first moved to Japan in 1999, I lived in a small town called Izumi Totori which is south of Wakayama. So it's essentially, I I joke, that Jacksonville, Florida of Japan. And there's relatively nothing in my town except for one ramen shop, which ultimately changed my life, and a couple other small places. But where I ate most of my meals was a convenience store chain called Lawson's. And Lawson's was actually started in America, in like the Midwest somewhere, but wound up really becoming a mainstay in Japanese food and Japanese culture. And when I tell people that most of my meals were eaten at a convenience store and they're saying, like, what is a convenience store? I was like, it's their 7-Eleven. That gives you an insight of just how good food is in Japan when ultimately the lowest, one of the lower levels of how you would eat when you purchase food is a convenience store. And when it is so good, it gives you an insight as just how rich and deep the food culture in Japan is. So, I'm not gonna go on and on and on about the convenience store philosophy, culture, and why I love it. What I wanted to do is break down my amateur opinion of what I like in Japanese convenience stores, because there is a variety. And this is up for debate. People will always have. What they like and dislike because of where they grew up, and it's almost like arguing what's your favorite pizza or fried chicken or stuff like that. but I, I I do think that within the realm of Japanese convenience stores, there is some things that are I prefer at others and dislike at others. So when I first went to Tokyo with Bourdain, I told him how much I love the Japanese egg sandwich, and almost across the board egg salad sandwiches are something that are around 200 yen. So it's about like, I think it's now like 220 yen. So it's a little over two bucks and it's tremendous. I don't even know how to describe it. Even if you don't like eggs, it's not even sensible as to why it's so delicious, why it's so fresh. The best egg salad sandwich, in my opinion, is at Lawson's and all of their sandos are very, very good. The ham and cheese, the tonkatsu, the potato salad sandwich you get sometimes, So Lawson's to me is my favorite. I think there's a lot of nostalgia and, you know, some people can disagree, but I think Lawson's is the best overall for me. It has the best fried chicken. They have a new fried chicken at Lawson's that I have not seen before. Maybe it's not new, but they have the nuggets and then they have kareage that are now served in sort of these cups with toothpicks. And you can get cheesy nuggets, you can get spicy nuggets, you can get regular nuggets, you can get the Japanese kareage. Some are spicy, some are regular marinated in like soy and ginger, and delicious. All of those are delicious. But they also have fried chicken. I'm talking about a, a convenience store, and I've actually gone into detail about how delicious certain things are, and I'm doing it right now. Fuck, They have fried chicken thighs, and they have a spicy fried chicken thigh, always good, They have something I've never had before and it's a black pepper fried chicken thigh and it's tremendous. Of course, I had to buy it when I saw it and maybe it's there, but maybe I've never had it. I've never looked for it. And that's the thing. What I love about these convenience stores is things are available when it's fresh. And I don't know what the rhyme or reason as to why they fry certain things off. But when you walk into a convenience store, it's sort of organized in, um, you have the magazine section, you have the baked goods section, you have the onigiri bento box section, you have sort of like a mini grocery section, you have the frozen food section, you have the ice cream section, you have canned goods, the instant rhyming section, and you have, um, All the drinks and beverages, you have hot and cold canned coffees. Uh, They have oden, which is basically like steamed fish cakes and soup, which is uniquely obviously Asian, but it's actually not that bad. I've had it. Usually that's the thing I order the least, but I love the steamed breads. They have nikuman. uh, That's basically like steamed buns, but enclosed and wrapped. Imagine like a barbecued pork bun, but they have vegetable, chicken, pork, cabbage, Those are always good. Those are about a dollar each, a little bit over a dollar. You can microwave your ramen and eat it there. But for the most part at Lawson's, I'm a big fan of their sandwich section and their fried chicken. Very, very good. They have very good onigiri. Actually, I think the onigiri at almost all the places are pretty good. But I tend to go with fried chicken, an egg salad sandwich, and an onigiri, which is a um, rice uh, ball shaped in a triangle. I'm trying to explain something from Japanese and English wrapped in nori with a variety of fillings. Uh, They have like tuna and mayo. They have kombu, seasoned kombu. They have shrimp tempura, fried chicken, umeboshi. I tend to like the kombu one quite a bit. Um, probably in second place for me is Family Mart. When you don't see a Lawson's, there's most likely a Family Mart in any town you're in or pretty much every corner in Japan is a convenience store. So Family Mart is the one that is also beloved. A lot of people like it. I like it a lot. I think they have better bento boxes than Lawson's. They also have very good fried chicken. And I think they have better Nikumans than Lawson's. All right. As a whole, it's all way better than you'll get anywhere else, all the convenience stores. But Family Mart has very good bentos. I I think the bento boxes, for whatever reason, are more delicious. Again, I could be wrong. This is just my opinion. I'm sure, no doubt, people from Japan are going to be upset as to my incorrect stance on these things. But this is my two cents. You can get your own fucking pod. 7-Elevens. Obviously, the genre is defined by 7-Elevens almost the world over, but the 7-Elevens in Japan are not as good as Lawson's or Family Mart. But 7-Eleven does something way better than any of its competitors in Japan, and that's its baked good and dessert section. I think they're Mont Blanc and their pancakes. They have this pancake. We're talking about things that are packaged in plastic, They have a chocolate cake. It's like a German chocolate cake thing. It's not, but it's served in like a cylinder. This pancake thing is delicious. It's like a pancake sandwich. And the Mont Blanc dessert is delicious. Almost all the baked goods and all their dessert sandwiches are delicious. And again, everything else that's savory that you'll find at the other convenience stores, very good, but. The baked goods, particularly dessert sweets at 7-Eleven are best in class. So when you have a sweet tooth, 7 Eleven's is the way to, way to go and the convenience store for you, at least it is for me. I have heard before that people believe that mini stop makes the best food and people in Tokyo seem to, I don't know, right? Like it's not the first time I've heard it. I think for me, mini stops really only make something that is one thing for me. It's a one item shop for me. And that is, it's fried chicken that is their like crunchy fried chicken. That's like covered in tiny potato pellets. It's almost like tater tot wrapped in chicken nugget and it's delicious. I have not partaken in as much mini stop food, so I can't give you my opinion other than their crunchy chicken is delicious and probably the thing that they're most famous for. But, um, I've probably only been to a a mini stop a couple times, and that's like on a highway in Japan. Circle K, you see in other countries. I've been to Circle Ks more in say like Southeast Asia, but I I honestly can't remember if I've been to a Circle K in Japan, because I'm always going to a Lawsons or a Family Mart. And I've never really been to a daily Yamazaka, which is another chain of convenience stores not enough data. I can't recall if I've ever been in one. And it's like anything else that is brand oriented. You tend to gravitate to the things you're most familiar with. As I said, I'm more partial to Lawson's because that's the one that I grew up eating. Family Mart is probably 1B to Lawson's. There are some people that like natural Lawson's. I think natural Lawson's is garbage. It's like... uh, I wouldn't say like Whole Foods-y, but they sell more fruits and vegetables and organic stuff. And while they have some of the same items, it's not the same. Between a natural Lawson's and a Lawson's, let me just put it that way, I'm going to a regular Lawson's every time. One of the best things about all of these convenience marts is that at least Lawson's and Family Mart, they have a ATM. And the best travel tip I can give is while... Japan is rapidly changing from a cash-based society to a credit card. Cash is still accepted in some of the restaurants. If you go to, we went to a restaurant called like KyoAji, they only take cash. And you're going to need cash. And, and people in Japan in the past, when I lived there, cash was king. So sometimes you need to take out cash and having one of these 7-Eleven like pit stops for cash is vital. Again, this may seem sort of nonsensical if you've only lived in America because there's ATMs and cash machines everywhere. But in Japan, you don't really see it. And a lot of the banks, it seems they don't take your cash card. So before you leave for Japan, either change money or take money out of your ATM account on one of the ATMs at the cash machines. Because I found that the ATMs in the 7-Eleven convenience stores, when I say the genre, seem to take my money. The card itself. If I take it out of one of the banks, they don't really take it unless you have one of the international stamps. I, I, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but my go-to for taking money out when I need it is out of the ATMs, out of the 7-Elevens. Anyway, I have rambled on about this quite a bit. I am excited to talk about it because I love Japanese as a food culture, and most importantly, uh, what I love about Japan, and I think that what gets lost is that you can eat extraordinarily well at the fanciest restaurants, at the best sushi yas. But what I love most about Japan is eating cheaply. Is almost more delicious because the bang for your dollar or yen is just stupendous. It really is. Eating well in Japan is probably the, my favorite place in the world because of it. Is everything is good. It's really hard to find a bad meal, and you can eat extraordinarily well in the convenience store. So. Open to your opinions on this. Please email us at, askdave at majordomomedia.com. Love to hear your rants, yourselves about Japanese convenience stores. Korea has some good ones and uh, they're different. Very, very different, but very, very good. And that's a whole nother conversation. That's about it. Stay tuned for our next podcast and uh, give us uh, five stars on iTunes if you listen to that or however you listen to your podcast. Thank you so much, guys.